So we are in the middle of chapter 30, which is a continuation of the theme that we began in chapter 29. And that is an exercise in reaching profound humility. Why are we going for this humility? And that's because we are trying to heal a spiritual sickness. The spiritual sickness is what we call timtum halev, a dull heart. A dull heart is a place where a person understands, studies about Hashem, meditates on the ideas, and then their heart does not respond. It doesn't make sense. It's actually not natural. Naturally, when you study, when you meditate, studying is one thing, but when you meditate to apply, your heart becomes moved. The previous Rebbe compares it to when you walk towards a fire, you naturally become warmed. That's the normal. But there's an illness. The illness is you study, you meditate, and your heart is not warmed. And so the Alter Rebbe explained the reason for this illness is the heart is covered over by the animal soul. The animal soul with profound chutzpah is raising itself up against the divine soul by special permission of Hashem so that the divine soul is not shining in the heart and allowing the person to feel. And in order to get rid of this, we have to come to a profound space of humility. Now, in chapter 29, we worked at humility between us and Hashem. Understanding how distant we were from Hashem just for the fact that we can desire to do something against Him. But that doesn't tell us how humble we are in regards to other people because while we may be distant, we may be far, but a person who's worse off than us spiritually will be further than us and it makes us feel superior to Him. So the Altar Rebbe says, let's look at the dictum of our sages. Be of humble spirit before every human being. Each of us needs to feel profound humility towards every single human being on planet Earth. Every, we, every, each of us need to feel extreme humility towards every single other human being on planet Earth. How? So the author said, first of all, let's follow the advice of our sages. Our sages said, do not judge your fellow until you have come to his place. His place means his physical place the things that he's been exposed to, and he is exposed to constantly on an everyday basis, unwholesome sights, unhealthy people, and that brings him to sin. Day in, day out, he's encountering these challenges every single day. But then there's something else. Even if you encounter the very same challenges as him, if you're in the same environment as him, you're in the same line of work, and you overcome, you still can't judge him because you don't know what his struggles are. He has this temptation inside of him that burns like... A fiery flame. His passions are so hard to overcome, they're literally like overcoming a test of faith where a person has to die. It's almost as hard as giving up life. Is he excused? He's not excused. He's still called a Russia. Why is he still called a Russia? Because he should have reined himself in for fear of Hashem. So he's not excused. But then we ask ourselves, why are we any better? He's not willing to struggle this profound fight. And do we say, no, you know what, it's okay. It's so hard for you. Just to keep the basic moral code of a civil society, you have these temptations, these passions that burn out of control. So you know what, you're okay. That's not what we say. We say, yes, it's very hard for you not to transgress, severe transgressions. But sorry, you're going to have to do it anyway. It's not okay. You can't just go rob the town blind. You can't just murder just because it's hard for you. Okay. He's not right. He's wrong. When he transgresses, he's wrong. He's a Russia. But what about us? Do we pour, put forth that level of struggle, that fierce, intense, mighty war in order to serve Hashem? And that's what we're going to look at right now. So we're on page. If you printed it out, we're on page three. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to move up a few lines. Therefore, every man ought to weigh and examine his own position according to the standards of his place and rank in divine service as to whether he serves God in a situation requiring a comparable struggle in a manner commensurate with the dimensions of such a fierce battle and test as the Kal Shivakalim faces. Okay, so we're going to say one second. Please, let's be honest over here. 
there's two ways of serving Hashem. There's two aspects where we have to serve Hashem, right? David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Sur tov. Turn away from evil and do good. He transgresses severe violations. How could you compare me to him when I don't do those kind of sins? And Alter said, well, you're only looking at sins right now. But let's look at Asetov, do good. In that area, are you measuring up? Bivchinas va'asetayv, in the realm of do good. And this is not a once in a while thing. This is something that we encounter day in, day out on a daily basis. And do we put forth the war that the Kal Sheba Kalim is expected to put forth? Here's example number one. We're going to look at the three pillars upon which the world stands. In Perkei Avos, we have a teaching from Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon HaTzadik says, on three pillars the world stands. On Torah, on Avoda, which is worship, and on Gemilus Chasadim, acts of kindness. So we're looking at our performance in do good, and we're going to examine these three pillars upon which the world stands. So first, the Altar is going to look at the pillar of service. Service is temple service, and today it's prayer. In the service of prayer with kavana, devotion, for example, he must battle his evil inclination daily in order to pour out his soul before God with his entire strength. So let's look at prayer, okay? Besides for the fact that, you know, we look at prayer every single day, we've got to pray, and that's important, and then there's the legal requirements of how we're supposed to pray. You have to have concentration, you have to remember that you're davening before Hashem. If you are lacking in concentration, let's say you don't pay attention. For the most part, your prayer is counted anyway, unless it's specific parts of prayer. Like, for example, when you say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you have to pay attention to what you're saying. If you didn't have pay attention, you have to go back and say it all over again. Similarly, in the Ashrei prayer, when you say, You open up your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. At that sentence, you have to have concentration. And for the beginning brachas of Shemona Esrei as well. Okay? But this is all the legal requirements of prayer. Let's take a prayer out of our personal realm for a second. Because we start getting defensive sometimes when we think about our own prayer. And we're like, okay, I don't measure up. And maybe this is not what Hashem wants. And it's fine. And I'm a woman. And I take care of kids. Blah, 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 blah. All of that. Okay? Forget about that for a second. And let's just look at what prayer is all about. Objectively, okay? Let's look at it as something that we're looking at not through our own personal glasses. But just for this moment, let's look at prayer as the objective exercise that it is. What is prayer? No, it's not an objective exercise at all. The Kuzari calls prayer an institution in order to cleave to the divine idea. Prayer is a time where we're supposed to be so in tune to the core of reality. It's a time where we leave the materialism of this world and cling to the utter truth. What is the utter truth? The utter truth is, as Moshe Rabbeinu said, Ata har ki Hashem Elokim ain't od milvado. You have been shown to know that Hashem is God. There is nothing else besides Him. To get so in tune to that idea that the utter truth is there is nothing else besides Hashem. And in case you think this is just a mystical exercise but not required by law let's look at how the Shulchan Aruch speaks about prayer somebody who's really pious and prays properly it's written like this in Shulchan Aruch and so did the pious one and the mystics who secluded themselves and concentrated on their prayers until they achieved the falling away of their corporeality and the enhancement of the strength of their consciousness until they came close to the level of prophecy. This is code of Jewish law. This is what the true exercise is in prayer. Totally divesting yourself of corporeality. 
leaving it all behind, coming to such an intense level of concentration that it's close to the level of prophecy. Okay? So this is what prayer is. This is not how a lot of people pray. This is what prayer is. Prayer is cleaving to the divine, escaping the material world, leaving it all away and coming so close, connected to the truth, the essence of it all, to Hashem. That's prayer. Now, indeed, look how far it goes. Ad mitzoy hanefesh, to the extent of wringing out his soul, meaning exhausting all of his intellectual and emotional power in his devotion. Looking at prayer this way, it is such an intense exercise to the point that he literally presses out his soul, wrings out his soul. The battle in prayer is twofold. There's the battle before prayer, just to prepare, and then there's the battle during prayer. When it comes to the battle before prayer, it's the battle of just trying to escape the body. We want to get close to Hashem, but we're stuck. We're really held back. We're incarcerated by our body, by our animal soul, by our material desires and all the distractions. And we have to leave that. To leave that behind takes tremendous effort. So, so we're going to look at uh, both of these, before and then during. Ulehilachem im gufay. This battle must be waged both before, preparatory to, and also during prayer as follows. He must wage a great and intense war against his body and the animal soul within it, which impede his devotion, crushing and grinding them like dust. He literally has to crush and grind his animal soul like dust. Does that mean hurt the body? Of course not. Our body has to be wholesome and healthy, perfect for serving Hashem. It means the ego. It means leaving the shackles, shackles of materialism. Leaving our natural pull. We're like pulled down by the gravity of materialism, of all the nonsense of this world. To leave that is a profound exercise in crushing the ego. That's step one. That takes a lot of effort. Shachris va'arvis midei yayim biyayim. Every single day before the morning and evening prayer. So in case you're saying, well, every once in a while I'm faced with this intense challenge. This is not every once in a while. This is every single day, twice a day, morning and evening. The altar doesn't say three times a day because if you are prepared properly good enough for Shacharis, it lasts you till Mencha. And then you have to do it again before Myriv. So twice a day. You are faced with this intense exercise of leaving your materialism behind, dropping your ego, crushing your animal soul in order to cleave to the divine. Day in, day out, twice a day, you're faced with this challenge. Now, during prayer. Also, during prayer, he must exert himself with an exertion of the spirit so that his spirit should grow so that his spirit should not grow weary of lengthy contemplation on the greatness of Hashem, and an exertion of the body to remove the hindrances to devotion imposed by the body, as will be explained further at length, and that is chapter 42. So now during prayer, it's a different exercise. Before prayer, it's about leaving the body, leaving the ego, getting rid of the material pressures that pull us. But during prayer, it's focusing on Hashem. That takes profound concentration. In order to come to love Hashem, we have to meditate. And the Ramam spells out in how it is that a person comes to feel this deep love for Hashem. And he says like this, What is the path to attain love and fear of Him? When a person contemplates His wondrous and great deeds and creations, and he appreciates his infinite wisdom that surpasses all comparison. He will immediately love, praise, and glorify him, yearning with tremendous desire to know Hashem's great na- name. And then he continues to explain how you come to fear by the same meditation. So in order to come to love for Hashem, we have to meditate. Think about his wondrous creations. Really delve deeply, not like something you read in a book, but you actually sit with. Let it enter your mind and work through your heart. That takes profound, tremendous effort. 
Okay, a lot of effort. A lot of effort means a lot of people don't do it. Now remember, this effort is reminding us of the effort that the sinful person must put forth just in order to avoid serious sins. So the author of Rebbe says like this. This is our measuring stick right now. Anyone who has not attained this standard of waging such a strenuous war against his body, has not yet measured up to the quality and the dimension of war waged daily within the Kal Shabbat against the evil nature which burns like a fiery flame. So that this, so that it, this powerful evil impulse, be humbled and broken through the fear of God. This then is the standard by which everyone must judge himself. Does he battle against his evil impulse during prayer and similarly in other areas of divine service that the Alt Rebbe will soon discuss as intensely as the Kal Shebakalim must battle against his? We expect him to put up that battle. Fine, but are we making those same demands of ourselves? Now, look, this is not about, you know, Check, check, check. I'm doing all my mitzvahs. I haven't done these averas. I'm really good. Yeah, if you're looking at things from that legal scale of, you know, what you did right and what you did wrong, then you're right. That's not how we're looking at things right now. All that is true. We are not negating it. We're not saying that's not true. All that is true. The way to judge somebody objectively in that kind of way is, did you do the mitzvahs you were supposed to do? Did you avoid the averas that you were supposed to avoid? We look at the benoni and we say, yes, he did. He's all great. Then we look at the Russia and we say, no, he didn't. He's terrible. Fine. That's by one level of measuring. But now we're taking it to a much deeper level. We're looking at, at the depth of things. We're looking at how devoted are you to Hashem? How in tune are you with the truth of the reality that there's nothing else besides him and that our whole existence is to manifest this truth in this world? The sinful person is not devoted. He's not willing to put up a battle. And then we have to look at ourselves. Are we devoted? Are we willing to put up a struggle? Doesn't look like. And in that respect, we are exactly the same. He's not willing to fight, and we are not willing to fight. The altar was telling us this to humble us. To humble us. It's supposed to bring us to a profound level of humility. Remember, the reason why we're coming to this humility, ultimately, where we get to in chapter 33, is to come to a great level of joy. It's not meant to, to bring us down to the point that we're depressed. That's not, it's not the issue here. We're supposed to come to a profound level of humility so that we can feel joy. And we'll get to it as the chapters progress. Okay, so let's look at it another area where we require a profound struggle... And yet, if we look at ourselves honestly, we realize we're not putting up that level of struggle. So too, with one's kavanah, the grace after meals, and in the benedictions, whether those said prior to eating or those said before performing a mitzvah, all of which requires a battle with one's evil impulse. So these are things on a daily basis that we encounter again and again. Saying grace after meals. Are we concentrating the way we're supposed to concentrate? That takes an intense level of battle. Are we putting forth that battle? Even a woman who's going to say, well, I don't have that amount of time to put forth that kind of struggle when I daven. Okay, but benching is a lot shorter than davening. Are we putting forth that level of effort when we're benching? And then, making the bracha before food. The Alter Rebbe writes in Seder Birchasanen, the laws of making these blessings before eating, that a person has to be aware, cognizant before whom he is making this blessing and over what he is making the blessing. So when you're saying a bracha, a lot of people just say, and then the next thing you know, food is in the mouth. You have to first think, who are you saying the bracha to? And why are you blessing? For what are you blessing? There's a story of the Radat, the famous chassid, Rabbi David Tzvichin, that every time he would make a blessing beforehand, he would lean on his hand with profound concentration, like somebody who was trying to remember something. And the previous Rebbe, when he was a little boy, saw this behavior and he asked him, why do you do that? 
and he said that before his bar mitzvah, his father took him to a private audience with the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, the grandson of the Alter Rebbe. And the, uh, the Tzemach Tzedek was warm and showed kindness and affection to him. And among the things that he told him, he said, listen to me, stop behaving like a child. Before you make a blessing, remember who you are saying Baruch Ata to. Who you are saying blessed are you to. So since then, anytime he needed a blessing, he would lean on his hand in deep concentration, remembering, who am I saying this to? In fact, the Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal, said, My Rebbe, the Arizal, warned me to be very careful about having kavana, proper intention, when reciting blessings, brachas. For doing so refines a person, enabling him to become a vessel for Kedusha, for holiness. And it is a major step towards Ruach HaKadosh. You think like, what is a blessing already? The Arizal warned his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, to be very, very careful because when he makes a bracha carefully with intention, it makes him a blessing for, it makes him into a proper vessel for holiness and it brings him a step closer to having Ruach HaKadosh. Now, you don't have to be a profound Torah scholar to make a blessing this way. In fact, when the Friedrich Rebbe was a little boy, he writes that he was outside building a toy ship and suddenly he heard a gardener making a bracha shahakol with such profound feeling that he trembled. He trembled from the gardener saying the bracha shahakol. So this takes an intense battle. Now this is just when we're thinking about the simple meaning of the word. If we really want to look at how halacha asks us to make a bracha, right? When a person says Hashem's name, they're supposed to have in mind the meaning of that name. So for example, when a person says the name Ado, and I'm not going to say Hashem's name, but we can say Adnai, when we say that name, we have to have in mind his lordship over everything. Adon, he's the master. Now, a lot of times we say the name that way, but it's written a different way because it's spelled with a yud and a hey and a vav and a hey, the name of Hashem that we don't pronounce. That name of Hashem talks about means Hashem's existence. He was, he is, he will be all at once together. If it is written that way and we have to read it another way, we have to have in mind both his existence and his lordship. And when we say the name Elohim, we have to think about his might and his omnipotence, both in the higher world and in the lower world. So this is just the concentration that we have during the bracha. Remembering the name of Hashem that we're saying. Remembering why we're making this blessing. Of course, remembering who we're talking to. Let's look at the mystical ideas behind a blessing. And this will help us also understand how the Arizal said that making a blessing properly can bring somebody to the level of Ruach HaKodesh. A blessing, a bracha... The word bracha has a related word. In Mishnah Kalayim, where it's talking about plants and not making forbidden mixtures, the Mishnah says, Hamavrich hagefen, a person who takes the vine and bends it down into the ground, pulls it down into the ground in order to sprout a new shoot. The word used to draw down, Hamavrich, means to draw down. Hamavrich to draw down. So the word Hamavrich is the same thing as hamamshech. Bracha is the same thing as hamshacha. What's hamshacha? Drawing down. So what is a bracha? A bracha is an exercise in drawing down intense divine energy into the world. When you say baruch ata, when you say blessed are you, we have to understand we're saying you. Could you imagine? We are speaking to Hashem as when we say someone facing us, we're saying you, we are speaking to Hashem in his essence. So we're saying, blessed are you Hashem. And saying blessed and saying Baruch, we are drawing down the essence of Hashem, you, into Seder Heshtalshalos, the order of the worlds. Even this transcendent name of Hashem, Havaya, is already as it relates to the order of the world. The very name Havaya is showing how Yod is the Tzimtzum and He is the, the expansion and the Vav is the, the drawing down again and the He is the expansion again. That's the name, Yod and K and Vav and K. This is Hashem as He already relates to the order of the worlds. We're saying Baruch Atah. We're drawing down the essence of Hashem into Hashem as He already relates to the worlds 
And then what becomes the vessel to hold that? That which we're praising him for. If we're praising for healing the sick. If we're praising him for creating the fruit of the tree. That is the vessel that is manifesting this divine energy that is essentially beyond the world. Hashem as he is in his essence. So these are the profound concentrations that we can have during a blessing. And the question becomes, we're making blessings all the time. Are we putting forth that intense amount of effort that we expect of the sinful person? True, the effort is in a different area. For him, he has to put forth this crazy battle just to resist his fiery nature. He has these temptations that we don't even want to think about that draw him in and pull him all the time. He has to fight like a valiant warrior and we expect it of him. Okay, now let's look at where we need to fight like a valiant warrior, to pray properly, to escape our ego, to, to bench properly, to make a bracha properly. Are we fighting like a valiant warrior? And if not, then what does that say about our level of devotion to Hashem? Okay, so that was pillar number one, pillar of prayer. Now we're going to look at the other pillar, another pillar, and this is the pillar of Torah study. V'chein b'inyan Similarly, with regard to the battle in the matter of one's occupation in Torah study, one must struggle to study far more than what is demanded by his innate or accustomed desire by means of a mighty battle with his body. When one studies Torah only as much as his natural inclination or habituated diligence dictates, he requires no effort or struggle at all. But in order to match the struggle of the Kal column, one must study far, far more than he would by nature or habit, as the Altar Rebbe will continue. Okay, so let's look at Torah study. A lot of us love to study Torah. For most of us, it's a joy. But then there comes to an extent where we say, okay, Done for today, I had enough, and what would be the reason for it? There's different ways to intensify Torah study. There is just simply in the quantity. Quantity is a certain amount of time. So even somebody who is a very diligent student and studies a lot of Torah, even he can find that maybe there's five minutes that he's misappropriating that he could be using for Torah study. He's not going out of his comfort zone in order to fight, in order to fight this intense battle. Then we can look at quality. Maybe he's not delving as deeply as he should. Maybe he's delving just as deeply as is comfortable and joyful and natural for him, but not anymore. When it gets to a certain level, he's like, okay, I'm done for today. Or what about pronouncing the words during Torah study? Actually, the, the best way to study Torah is by pronouncing the words. There's the famous story of Bruria, who sees a student studying quietly, Broria being the wife of Rabbi Meir, the famous daughter of Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan, brilliant woman that she was. Broria walks by this student who's studying silently, and what does Broria do? She kicks him, and she says to him, don't you know what it says? Arucha bakal ushmura, arranged in everything and secured. If the Torah is arranged in all your limbs, it will be secured, and if not, you're going to lose it. So study out loud. So this is Bruria, and she's giving advice. You want to keep Torah study? You want to keep it in your bones? You want it to be secured? Say it out loud. Your ears should hear what your mouth is saying. That can take a lot of effort. Now, there could be reasons why a person wouldn't study that way. For example, sometimes people need to study quietly because for whatever reason they find that it's interrupting their, con- their concentration. Or maybe they're being mindful of the people around them. But whatever it is, the optimum way of studying Torah is out loud. And even a person who studies in great quantity and in great quality might find that he's lacking in this area he's not putting his body to the effort of saying the words out loud now again this is not about being you know okay or not okay you want to be okay there are certain legal limits of what you got to be doing if you're doing them you're okay that's not what we're saying here right now we're talking about who we are in our essence How much are we connected to Hashem at the depth of our being? How much of our, all of our soul faculties and the way we think and the way we speak and the way we act, how much of these are so in tune with Hashem that they express Him? If we're just up to legal stuff and we want to be good, okay, fine, fine, check, 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 that's okay. 
We're not talking about that here right now. We're talking about relationship with Hashem, our utter devotion to Him, how much we express His truth in the world. If you want to be somebody who's called an Ayyavid Hashem, one who serves Hashem, we learn in chapter 15, you have to learn a little bit more than you're accustomed to. So somebody who, in the olden days, everybody reviewed their chapter 100 times. A person who reviewed his chapter 101 times, he was called one who serves Hashem. We're talking even more than that right now. We're talking about fighting, not a little battle, not doing time 101 versus time 100. We're talking about fighting a profound battle of the magnitude required of somebody who has this crazy, insane, evil inclination within him. Are we putting forth that level of battle? For to study a fraction more than is one's want entails but a minor tussle. It neither parallels nor bears comparison with the war of the Kal Shivakalim against his evil impulse, which burns like a fire. Now, if we don't b- battle, fine, who's going to know? But if he doesn't battle, then what? The Mikre Rasha Gamor. For which he is nonetheless called utterly wicked, a Rasha Gamor, if he does not conquer his impulse, so that it be so that it be subdued and crushed before Hashem. If he doesn't fight that battle, he's a Rasha. Similarly, unless one struggles with his evil impulse to study much more than his nature or habit demands, he is no less wicked than the Kal Shabakalim. But one may object to this reasoning. How, one may say, can I in all honesty compare my shortcomings to those of the Kal Shabakalim? I am lacking merely in the quality of the good that I do, whilst he, is actu- he actually and actively violates prohibitions enumerated in the Torah. Again, we're saying, come on, let's, let's be fair. True, I'm not fighting the fight that he needs to fight, but when he doesn't fight, he is actively engaging in serious sin. And when I don't fight, okay, so I'm not doing my optimum. How can you compare? So listen to the, uh, what the Alter Rebbe says now. Okay, this is huge. Umali bechinas sormeira. Umali bechinas va'asetai. What difference is there between the category of turn away from evil, in which the Kal Shabakalim fails by active violation, and the category of do good, in which he fails by neglecting to exert himself in prayer, Torah study, and the like. Okay, to be sure, there are differences between the two categories. Each has its own unique spiritual effects, its own specific intentions. But these differences only pertain to the person performing the mitzvah. The essential point in a mitzvah, however, is that it is an expression of the will of the only and unique God. And in this, there is no difference whatsoever between the two categories, as the Alter Rebbe continues. Okay, let's look at a mitzvah and a vera for a second, just in general. So there are mitzvahs. Every time a person does a mitzvah, they draw down a new divine energy into the world. If a person misses the opportunity for a mitzvah, they miss an opportunity for drawing down divine energy into this world. Now, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? I heard a really great story of Rabbi Steinzeltz, that it was one of his birthday for Bringens. He was already at an advanced age. This was in the Tzemach Tzedek Shul in Israel. And I guess it was a Shabbos afternoon and it was a Farbringen and there was vodka and food. And one of the participants there had the gall to come over to him and ask him, Rabbi Steinzeltz, tell me, what is your biggest regret in life? And he said, <laughs> my biggest regrets are not the things that I did. They are the things that I did not do. And that is what we should have in mind when we miss a mitzvah opportunity. We don't even have a true appreciation of what it means to bring more divine energy into the world. But that's what happens when a person misses the opportunity to do a mitzvah. So that's the mitzvah. Then let's look at an avera, a sin. God forbid a person sins, they cause a blemish to their soul. So a blemish, a stain, whatever it is that is affected. And there, between every Avera, there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a 
greater avera that causes more of a blemish, a supposedly lesser avera that causes less of a damage. And the same thing with mitzvahs. There's going to be a mitzvah that brings a certain level of divine light, and then there's going to be a mitzvah that brings an incredible amount of divine light. So mitzvah to mitzvah, there's going to be some differences, and avera to avera, there's going to be some differences. But that's just one factor. If a person sins, a person misses an opportunity, there's the effect of the sin. And yes, the effect is different. From mitzvah to mitzvah, from avera to avera, from mitzvah to avera, the effect is different. But then we boil it down to one thing. What is it? In its essence, each and every mitzvah is command of the king. Let's see what the Alter Rebbe says inside. Hakolhi mitzvahs hamelech hakadesh yachet umeyuchad baruchu. Both are the commandments of the holy king, the only and unique one. Blessed be he. The failings of the observant individual and the quality of his prayer, Torah study, and so on, are therefore comparable to the transgressions of the kal shabakalim. Okay, so let's look at the Alter Rebbe's unique language over here. What does he say? He says, it, both are commandments of the holy king, Hamelach HaKadosh. He's calling Hashem king in this instance. Why? Let's look at, okay, we're in America, we're in a democratic country, really don't have a con concept of sovereignty, but from the books, imagine in the books, okay? The olden days. If somebody transgressed the king, his head could get chopped off, right? There were the laws of the land in order to promote civil order, peace, okay? In order to keep the peace of the land, in order to maintain proper, proper civil order, there are the certain laws. Like we can think of in our own land, you know, the green lights and the red lights and however it takes to maintain a proper and ordered society. If a person doesn't parks on the street when they shouldn't be parking on the street and they're really annoying and it's rush hour and they're still on the main boulevard after four o'clock, so they get a ticket. If they're on a bigger street, they'll probably get a bigger ticket. These are the things that you look at the individual crime, you realize what kind of inconvenience it caused society, how much of a transgression it was, and then the punishment suits the crime. But then let's look at when a king gives a command doesn't matter if the king said tie your shoelace or the king said go win the war whatever the king said if a person disobeys the king at that point it's just rebellion it doesn't matter what it was at this point it makes no difference when we're looking at it as this is what Hashem wants it makes no difference anymore what it is what difference is it turn away from evil do away from good let's get at the core of it what is it as the core it's what Hashem asks you to do. At this point, it makes no difference. So we have to look at ourselves and say, yes, okay, true. He did some serious violations. And for me, I don't fight a war when it comes to these other areas. But let's look deeper. Right now, we're talking about the will of Hashem. At this point, it really makes no difference. And now the altar is going to continue and show us in other areas of the third pillar, how we too don't fight. A mighty battle <laughs> in case you didn't have enough examples so from the third pillar and the third pillar is remember we talked about avoda which is worship prayer we talked about torah is the second with the other pillar and then we are speaking now about tzedakah gemilas chasadim act of kindness so too with other commandments requiring a struggle. One may find that he does not wage war adequately against his evil impulse, especially in matters involving money. So when, when a mitzvah requires financial commitment, people will find that they will not want to spend more than they have to. So it could be with tzedakah, it could be with buying the beautiful esrag, it could be with making a beautiful sukkah, buying nice wine for kiddush, Whatever it is, when it comes to serving Hashem with matters involving money, suddenly a person will find that they will not fight that kind of battle that's required of them. And Alter was going to give the example of tzedakah. Such as the service, the labor of charity, giving charity in a manner involving labor, meaning far more than is his want, and the like. So we gave the three examples. We gave the example of prayer, we gave the example of Torah study, we gave the example of giving tzedakah. In each of these, we examined our own self and we said, are we putting forth that 
level of struggle that we are requiring of the college to call him just so that he shouldn't be called wicked. If he doesn't put up that battle, he is called wicked. Okay, but what about us? Are we putting up that level of battle? So let's summarize what we said until now and let's expand it a little so that we can understand because the ideas are very intense and I want to make sure that we don't take it out of context because if we do, it becomes confusing. We are asking ourselves now, true, the Kal Shabakalim, we expect him to rein himself in. And if he does not rein himself in, then he is called utterly wicked, a Russia Gamor. But now let's look at ourselves. Do we put forth that level of effort in when it comes to do good? For him, it's about doing evil. He's, he's not turning away from evil. He's giving in to his evil inclination all the time. But let's look at ourselves when it comes to do good. We're doing what we should do. But when it comes to putting forth our optimum in order to engage in intense struggle, are we engaging in the same battle as him? And if not, then why are we any better? It's true, there's a difference between mitzvah and mitzvah, vera and vera, vera and mitzvah. But that's only at one level. If we boil it down to the core of everything, it is all about this is Hashem's will. And at that point, it makes no difference anymore what Hashem asks us to do. When he asks us to do something and a person doesn't do it, at that point, it's treason. That's what it is. So now, let's look at this deeply so that we can come to understand what we're talking about over here. In chapter 6, the Altarba described what is holiness. Holiness is an indwelling of Hashem's presence. The more that something is abnegated and nullified to Hashem, the more it is holy. True holiness is something that is totally battle, totally nullified to Hashem. So if we want to look at a person, you know, if they're good or bad, at a very legal scale, we'll look at the mitzvahs that they do, we'll look at the averas they don't do, and we can never take away from the profound goodness that every mitzvah brings into the world. And every time a person avoids an avera, the amazing effects that they cause in the supernal world. All that is 100% true. But now we're looking at the person in their essence. How much are they in tune to the core of reality? The more that a person is willing to put their ego aside, to step out of their own comfort zone, and instead be totally a manifestation of the will of Hashem, to express the truth of the divine, that there's nothing else besides him, the more he is connected to the realm of holiness. The less a person is willing to put his own ego aside and step out of his comfort levels for Hashem, then there's the less of the connection to holiness. And this is what we're looking at here right we're looking at here right now. We're looking at how much in our essence are we an expression of the ultimate truth? Because we're trying to come to humility here. We're looking around and seeing all the people who are far worse than us and we're saying, Oh, they're so bad. Compared to them, I'm wonderful. You see, like I once read this diet tip when I was a teenager and it said, If you wanna if you wanna get this quickest way of losing weight, Never stand next to somebody who doesn't weigh 50 pounds more than you. (laughs) So if that's the way we want to feel good and we're looking around and we're saying, you know, we're looking at all these people who are committing sins all the time, we can feel very righteous. We can feel like we're superior to them. Well, guess what? Even if you stand next to somebody who weighs 100 pounds more than you, it's not a good diet because you're not weighing the ideas properly. Over here, we're looking at the core. He's not willing to fight He's not devoted. Look at the areas where we have to fight. Are we willing to put up that level of fight? So that's where we got up until, to until now. I know the ideas are very intense and I want to make sure that we don't lose focus because ultimately what we're working towards here is joy. And these kind of meditations that we're speaking about in these chapters are planned meditations for certain times in order to come to humility. Humility is something that we should feel all the time. But to have these ideas in mind and to sit with them to the point that we crush ourselves, that is not something we're supposed to walk around within our head all the time. That's for planned times where we take the ideas deeply. Humility is for always. The meditations are for planned times. So I'm opening now for questions and discussions. I'm reminding everybody that we're all on mute and I can't unmute anybody so if you want to speak you have to unmute yourself Rachel, yeah I have a question Miriam 
you said you said that in the Shulchan Aruch, the we we have to pray with a certain kavana, right? Right. So if we if we don't, because we don't do it all the time, like you say, is it considered as an avera? No. It is not considered an avera, and that's important question, and it's important to know. A person okay. prayers without proper consecration, they did the mitzvah. It's considered okay. they did the mitzvah. The question becomes, that, are they doing the mitzvah optimally? That's what we're talking about here. Okay. So if you don't put the right kavana, do you bring down the, the, the spark of, of what you're supposed to? Or you just, because you did, you did it as an action, you, you did it, so you bring down the diamond, the diamond uh, how do you say in English? Divine. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So are you doing it or you just don't doing it because you didn't have the proper kavana? Okay, so we are creating something every time we pray. The thing is, okay. as we're going to learn later on in, Ch- in Tanya, in chapters 38 and 39, about you know the intent of mitzvahs and everything, um, praying without proper kavana, without proper intention, is like a body without a soul. Nevertheless, though, let's say a person prays without intention, but the next time that they pray with intention, the soul that was infused in this prayer becomes infused in their previous prayers at well, as well and lifts those prayers up. So anytime a person didn't have concentration, one thing is at least they did the mitzvah. Then at a later time when they do have proper concentration, we should all know that that proper concentration that we have grabs onto our previous prayers and brings up high, brings them higher. So it's very important to remember that at least we do them. You know, everybody in their own space. We all have to do what we need to do. We need to do the best. We can never let better be the enemy of good. We have to do what's good enough instead of saying, you know what, I can't do an excellent job, so I'm not going to do it at all. Oh, no, of course not. That's not the way to do it. You need to do whatever you can. If it's not amazing, it's not amazing. Do what you need to do, and eventually you'll do better. But at least do whatever you can. It's like, you know, I can't make a a three-course gourmet meal for dinner tonight, so I'm not going to make dinner at all. No, bad idea. Make pasta and cheese. There has to be something for dinner tonight. So the same thing with davening. Don't say, oh, I can't have fabric of so I'm not going to pray. Pray. Next time you'll pray better. At least you do the mitzvah. Well, I wanted to ask you. For myself, I, you know, I do, I do Jonathan and I, I do my very best that I can, or at least I'm, I'm trying to improve on it. But so much of the time, my, my greatest and deepest davening is, is not with the actual formal parts of prayer. And I, you know, I'm trying to transition over, but it's not always so easy. Right. So I don't know if you, I mean, it's just, it's such a struggle. To stay, you know, to get more meaning out of out of the actual um, words of prayer from the, the Sidor. Right. So, first of all, um, I wouldn't try to transition. Meaning, keep those deep, meaningful prayers, the ones that you have. Those are great. And then also, during prayer, prayer was organized in a way that it should bring us to a great level of intense emotion. If it's not, then possibly we haven't done enough research on the words. There are some really great resources out there. I mean, I know for the Nusach, uh, uh, the Nusach Ari, but they have the Weiss Siddur, which is an amazing Siddur with all these mystical explanations, and it has like an interpolated translation so that when you read it, it really makes sense, and then you see the notes on the side, like these ideas, it just, it just will send, you know, sparks of fire in your heart. But we have to take the time to like read it, you know, so everybody has to know their own self and how much time they have available to them and not during a time of prayer. Another time, just sit there and read certain passages of prayer. And then when it comes to prayer time, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like it comes to like a favorite song, you know, that's another thing is praying out loud and singing too helps prayer become exciting.
if you can. It doesn't have to be the whole prayer, but it, it just, you know, my sister taught me that. She said, especially if you're with kids, you're watching kids and you're trying to pray at the same time. You know, that could be very challenging. But first of all, when you're praying out loud and you're also singing, then the kids feel a part of your prayer. And it's not like you're excluding them and then, you know, focusing on something else. No, we're all in this together. I'm Davidi Hashem. This is fun. This is exciting. And then it also, the sound and the music, you know, revs up our own heart. Honey, I'm waiting for an insight today. <laughs> I, I just have to make a comment to the woman who just shared about her prayer. First of all, it's like amazing to be able to pray without the Siddur. I think that like, you know, that's the level I think that a lot of people are striving for. But just from, from the perspective of someone who was raised religious and, you know, I've been praying since I was a little kid. Not to feel like because you're coming to prayer later in life that, you know, everybody else is, is you know, has the prayer book and they have the deep <laughs> concentration and they're like connecting. And for you, you're used to praying just from your heart. And when you have to pray from the seat door, you're struggling. Just know that everybody struggles with praying from, you know, being able to connect in that way with, with Hashem. And that, I don't know, I was just very touched by what you shared. So, <laughs> for, um, sharing that it's very hard. like i think we, we we don't have perspective because we're just living our own lives and we, we look at everybody else and we just assume things about other people and the way that they're serving hashem but just want to give you perspective at least from my perspective and from speaking to just my family and sisters and friends you know like we all struggle with the same things so. yeah actually the the alter rabbi wanted to call it's called hasidim he didn't gave he didn't give his followers that name his opposition gave his followers that name. What the Alta Rebbe wanted to call his group, his followers, were the Bale Tshuva. So if we can ever hope to call ourselves a Bal Tshuva, we are the luckiest person alive. That's really what the Alta Rebbe strived, is that each of us should be a Bal Tshuva. There's no, no such thing as a person who can't do Tshuva. That's one of the things that made the detractors of the Baal Shem Tov so angry with him is his quote from the Zohar that Mashiach is going to have the tzaddikim do teshuva and they said what? it sounded like me? you're going to have me take teshuva? Hashem is infinite there's nobody that cannot get closer to him teshuva doesn't mean repenting for bad deeds besides for that teshuva means returning to your essence and since Hashem is the, our essence he is infinite and there is no limit to how much higher we can reach Yesterday, what was good enough for us, no matter what great tzaddik you are, tomorrow has to be better. <laughs>